thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, some of you have heard the radio show I used to do right here, right now. And I do a, a radio show now, three hours a day, called the Patrick Madrid Show, hence the logo on there. I'll tell you a little bit about the program later. Uh, but I know that those of you who have heard my radio program are scratching your heads and saying, he sounds much taller on the radio. <laughs> Can I see a show of hands? How many of you here know somebody who has left the Catholic Church? Everybody. How many of you here have ever been faced with a tough question about your Catholic faith at one time or another, but didn't have a good answer to that tough question? Right. And how many of you do not like to be asked to raise your hands in public? May I see that also? <laughs> Almost as many people. The talk I'm going to give now deals with the theme of why be Catholic, and it fits nicely with both of those two problems that we all raised our hands about, and that is you know somebody who has left the church, and my guess is it could be even someone in your own family. And I'll guess further that someone in your own family might be your own son or daughter who grew up and left the Catholic Church. You were diligent in taking them to Mass every Sunday, teaching them the faith, doing your very best to pass on that Catholic teaching that you had received from your parents, only to your sorrow to see your sons and daughters get into high school, or maybe it was in college when they began to drift away from God. That's probably true. You don't have to raise your hands. But it's probably true for most parents who have adult children in this room right now. And so the talk is going to, on the one hand, give you some information that you can use in conversations with people, whether it's someone you know and love, like a son or a daughter, or could be somebody at your place of work or someone you meet on an airplane, the opportunity to engage in apologetics and to explain why you're Catholic can happen anywhere. And what I'd like to do is to survey some of the things that are very important to me and the things that I talk about when someone asks me that question, why be Catholic? The second category of problem is that all of us know that uncomfortable feeling of being put on the spot with a question and you don't have a good answer. And you know you don't have a good answer. And you might bluff your way through it, or you might, you know, kind of bluster your way with an answer. But deep down inside, you're thinking to yourself, I really don't know what to say. Apologetics, keep in mind, is not the art of winning arguments. It's the art of winning souls. And sometimes, when you are faced with a, a question, you won't know the answer. Now, the beautiful part about being a Catholic in the 21st century with the internet and all the wonderful books and DVDs and radio programs and things that are available is that the answers are not very difficult to find. It just requires a little bit of effort, and you can find the answer to any question that might be raised by an atheist or a Muslim or a Protestant or whoever the person might be. The answers, thankfully, are there. You just need to do a little bit of work to get the answers, and then you can respond. But I'd like to include a little proviso, and that would be that you should never try to bluff your way through an apologetics response. If you don't know the answer, the very best thing to say in all honesty is, you know, that's a great question. I really don't know the answer. But I know there is an answer. And if you give me your email address, or if I can friend you on Facebook, or in some other way stay in touch with you, I'll get the answer and I'll send you a link to the answer. I promise you that. And I found that when you're engaging in apologetics, one of the temptations is to worry that if you don't know the answer, that maybe there is no answer. And the other person, when you're speaking to him or her, is going to see a, an authenticity about you that you not only have the humility to admit that you don't know the answer, but also that you have the willingness to go get the answer because the answer is important. And he, he might think, well, if it's important enough to her, to go find that answer, then it should be worth my time to at least take a look at that answer. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Well, with that in mind, what I'd like to do is, is to present to you how I respond to the question, why be Catholic? And I've been asked this question numerous times over the years. I am not a convert to the Catholic Church. I'm a cradle Catholic, born into, the, into a Catholic family. I was baptized at about two or three weeks of age. And so I bring a, a different perspective that might track with those of many of you here, your perspectives or your experience, probably a lot like mine, is you grew up with the Catholic faith, and you didn't have to give up anything to receive it. That's one of the reasons that I'm so grateful to converts like Scott and Kimberly Hahn and Marcus 
and Marilyn Grodi and Tim Staples and all the other household names that I know that you're all familiar with, what inspires me about their stories is that they had to go through a lot of mental work, a lot of emotional work. They had to give up things and friends and situations that, from one standpoint, would be very difficult to give up in order to lay hold of that pearl of great price, the Catholic faith. But I, on the other hand, it was given to me. I, I didn't ask for it. I was raised that way. And perhaps like many of you, I was, as a child, I was in that childlike state of faith when I just believed everything my parents told me, other than it was time to go to bed. I didn't believe that. <laughs> but if my parents said that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist on the altar, I believed it. I didn't demand biblical evidence from my parents. You know, gee, Mom, unless you can prove to me from the Bible that this is true, I'm not going to accept it. And all of us at one time had that kind of childlike faith, didn't we? And you can probably wistfully recall those days when it was so simple and you just believed it because mom and dad who love you told you it was true and that was good enough for me and good enough for you back in those days. I recall when I was about five years old being flabbergasted when I discovered that not everyone in the world was Catholic. And it was very strange to me, my five-year-old brain, thinking that everything my parents had taught me was true was so obviously true that everybody everywhere would accept this. So when somehow or another, when I discovered that there were plenty of people out there who didn't believe what I had been taught, I found it perplexing. And I don't remember anything else about that experience other than it was very strange to me that not everybody would believe the things I had been told. And uh, as I got older, as happens to all of us in one way or another, I began to bump into the sharp edges of reality. And I would discover little by little in school, for example, that there were kids in my class who either were not Catholic or maybe they weren't even Christian. There were Jewish kids in my class. I remember one girl in my fourth grade class who was an atheist. I didn't even know what that word meant until my parents explained it to me. They said she doesn't believe in God. And that was like super perplexing. Like how could somebody not believe in God? It just, but I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any way of explaining things. I just knew that I believed in God and how strange it was that somebody in my class didn't. In the fourth grade, this, this particular year really stands out in my mind for one reason is that I was on a field trip one day and I maneuvered my, my way in line so I could sit next to this cute girl in my class that I wanted to spend you know, some quality time talking to on this field trip. I figured we have the bus ride, we can have some nice communication. And it worked out, I sat next to this girl and everything was great, we had a fun field trip that day until it was time to come back from the field trip, we're sitting on the bus, and somehow or another she asked what church I went to. And I told her, my parish, and she looked at me and she said, are you Catholic? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, and the look on her face was one of disappointment and disgust. And I didn't know why. I said, you know, we had this great time together today, and why would this ruin it? And she said, well, Catholics are idolaters. And I said, we are not. What's an idolater? I didn't know. <laughs> That's another word that entered my vocabulary that day. I didn't know what that word was. And she said, well, Catholics worship statues. And I said, no, we don't. And she said, yes. And, and she was quoting from memory from, uh, from uh, Exodus chapter 20, where the Lord God tells Moses, do not carve any graven images of anything in the sky or on the earth or the waters beneath the earth. Do not bow down before them and worship them. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. If you haven't read the book of Exodus lately, I'm sure you all have seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, in that movie, the Hollywood version of the Ark of the Covenant, which, uh, which it, he talks about just shortly after this prohibition against images, and she was describing this passage. And I had no clue what to say to her. She was adamant, whatever church she went to, they insisted that Catholics were idolaters, because after all, look, here's a graven image of our Lord and, and uh, St. Joseph. There's a a graven image here of our Blessed Lady, and if you were to go into any Catholic church, you would find stations of the cross and crucifixes and statues, all graven images. And so there I was, sitting on the bus, my jaw hanging down. I didn't know what to say to her, but it was really, uh, it made me kind of angry because I, I had never worshipped a statue. I had never seen my parents worship a statue. 
And the whole idea of worshiping a statue seems so ridiculous, but I couldn't explain it to her. I couldn't, all I could do is to say, you know, no, that's not true. And she would say, yes, it is true. You know, so that was pretty much the end of that uh, relationship at that point. <laughs> and just as an aside, it wasn't until many, many years later as an adult that I had studied the Bible more closely and I discovered, going back to Exodus 20 and the Ark of the Covenant, I discovered that God indeed prohibited graven images, but for the purpose of idolatry, the golden calf, for example. Or when in the book of Numbers, when God had told Moses to carve the image of a snake, remember this bronze snake that would go on a pole and they would hold it up so that those who were being bitten by poisonous serpents in the desert, they would see this and in some mysterious, miraculous way, they would be cured of the snake bite. And we're told a little bit later that Sometime, generations later, the Israelites began to worship that snake on a pole as if it were some kind of a divinity, and the king immediately had it destroyed. And so I began to see that it's not graven images, it's not statues that are being prohibited, it's the whole idea of idolatry. And the Israelites were prone to a certain type of idolatry, that of worshiping an actual image as opposed to the one true God. One day, Carl Keating, my friend at Catholic Answers, he and I were to speak at a parish in Chicago. And I love telling this story because it literally happened as I'm about to describe it to you. We pulled up in front of the rectory at the parish, and on the front lawn were these very large and beautiful life-size statues of Our Lady of Fatima, and then the three smaller statues of the children of Fatima, kneeling with their hands folded in prayer in front of the bigger statue. And I turned to my colleague, Carl, and I said, what a great religion. Not only can we worship statues, but our statues can worship statues. <laughs> this is a true story. This really happened. When you hear this story told, you know that it happened to me. And so Carl and I chuckled about it, and then I thought, well, that's kind of a funny way to open the evening. So I opened the talk that evening by telling the story the Catholics chuckled just like you did, but there were some non-Catholics in the audience that evening who didn't chuckle, and one of them happened to be a local Baptist minister who at the Q&A period, he said, why were you laughing? Because we know that you do worship statues. And so then I had a perfect setup for the question and answer to explain from the Bible that it's not idolatry. Uh, to go back to the Ark of the Covenant, you can see in Exodus 25, which is just five chapters later, that that's where God commands Moses to carve graven images. And those are the graven images of the angels that would sit on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And they were certainly religious. They were certainly very holy. And God commanded this. So I began to see, well, it's not images. It is idolatry. Now, there's a, just like a little mini hors d'oeuvre for you to think about when it comes to apologetics. There's an example of how apologetics can be done in a simple way, you know, a little bit of scripture, and then you make some common sense explanations. We, we have images of Our Lady and, and Jesus and other great figures of our faith in the same way that you might have pictures of your family and friends on the wall of your living room. You see them and you remember them and you love them even though you couldn't care anything one way or the other about the paper. If you saw me kiss a picture of my wife and children, you wouldn't be shocked and think, what's wrong with that guy? He loves Kodak paper, you know why? <laughs> you would know that it's the people represented. So there's just like a little mini exercise in apologetics. And although we don't have time to discuss any specific apologetics issues per se, what I'd like to do is to, to tell you a little bit more about how I began my role in the world of apologetics. The next major milestone for me happened in my, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And I was, I call it my golden summer because I was living in Southern California. We lived not far from the beach. I had my driver's license, which was the most important thing on the planet as far as I was concerned. My parents let me use a family car. I had some jingle in my pocket because of my part-time job. So life was good that summer. And one little value-added detail was that I had started this friendship with this girl in my neighborhood, really cute girl, really nice family. And so she and I would be going to movies and going to get pizza and the roller skating and all that kind of thing. The downside, however, was she came from a very hardcore Protestant family. Now, her dad especially was very nice, a very friendly man, and very good to me in many respects, but he was also deeply anti-Catholic. 
He was the first person that I ever met who strongly challenged me and told me, listen, you're a nice kid. I like you. You can continue to come here and see my daughter, but I just got to tell you, you're not a Christian, but I'm baptized. Yeah, but that's, that's man-made. You don't believe in the real Jesus. You believe in a different Jesus. You follow a different gospel. You are not saved. You're not going to heaven. And rather than getting angry and leaving, I thought, well, the, if the price of admission to be able to see this girl is I've got to sit down with her dad from time to time and go through these things. I'm willing to do that. And so over the course of that summer, every time I would go to Christy's house, it seemed like every single time, her father would make me sit down in the living room and he would get out his big King James Bible and he would pepper me and grill me with arguments against the Catholic Church. Give you some examples. And I won't have time to answer them for you in this talk, but I want you to feel the weight of what I was feeling that summer. As a Catholic kid, I knew what I believed, but I couldn't defend what I believed. He would say things like this. He'd say, in the Catholic Church, what do you call priests? Father? And he would open his Bible to Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, and he would quote it. He says, well, Jesus said, call no one on earth father, for you have but one father who is in heaven. And then he'd sit back with a big Cheshire cat grin, and he would say, so why does your church do something that Jesus said not to do? And I had no answer. Another time he said to me, now tell me, Pat, in your church, the Catholic church, you believe that Mary is sinless, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. The uh, Immaculate Conception. Mary was perpetually free from sin her entire existence, free from sin from the moment of her existence. And he said, well, that's interesting. And then he would open his Bible to the Gospel of Luke, and in the Magnificat section, where Our Lady is praising God, she says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. So he said, now, isn't that interesting? Your church teaches that Mary was sinless, which the Bible nowhere says, and Mary herself said she needed a Savior. So if Mary was sinless, why did she need a Savior? And then he would sit back with a big Cheshire Cat grin, and I would flail and fumble. I had no clue what to say. And he would say, if she was sinless, what was she saved from? And I had no answer for that. Now, the answer, I'll give you one quick answer, is Our Lady did need a Savior, as she herself says. Her Savior is Jesus Christ, and, Mary, and, and Jesus did save her from sin, but in an anticipatory way. He saved her from sin before she contracted it. He saves us after the fact. So when Mary cried out, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior, she was obviously speaking the truth. Jesus Christ is her Savior. Jesus saved her from sin. Jesus saved her by his death on the cross. But because God is not bound by time and space, that was applied to her at the moment of her conception. You and I receive the benefit of our redemption and salvation after the fact. You all see how that works. But that summer, I was like a deer in the headlights. I had no idea. One day, her father gave me a chick comic book tract called The Death Cookie. Have you seen these little chick comic book tracts? They're little comic books, but they're anti-Catholic. They have an anti-Catholic message. This one was against the Holy Eucharist, and it was called The Death Cookie. And on the front cover of this little comic book was a host from Mass with a skull and crossbones over the front of it. Don't let it bother you. There are people out there who, who fall for that kind of thing. And I knew instinctively, I said, this can't be true. And he says, read this. It's going to show you why you're teaching about, he called it the cookie or the wafer. He said, this will show you why what you believe is not true. So I would go home time after time, and I'd say to, like, to my dad, I'd say, okay, dad, here's the latest thing, the death cookie. What do I do with this? And my dad would say, no problem. And he'd reach up on the shelf, and he'd pull down a book from the shelf, and he'd say, it's in this book. I'm not going to show you where, but the answer to your question is in this book. And he would pull down a book like uh, Radio Replies, for example, the three-volume classic work of apologetics. I recommend every, house, every Catholic house have this book. And what I found time after time, whether it was the death cookie or call no man father, or Mary didn't need a savior, that kind of thing. I would find the answers in these apologetics books. They were biblical, they were historical, they made sense, and they were far more cogent and compelling than the arguments that Christie's father was giving me. So what happened was, over the course of the summer, I would come back to her house stronger and stronger and stronger in my belief in the Catholic faith, and I think her father began to realize that, so he would quickly change the subject. So. <laughs> 
I would come back and I'd have my note paper and I'd say, okay, I have the answer from the Bible on why we call priest father. And then I would start rattling off the Bible verses and making the connections and things. So what happened in the end was Christy and I, as these things typically happen, we drifted apart. We started school in the fall and that was pretty much the end of our friendship. Uh, no hard feelings or anything, but what happened was I had gone through a, a kind of a crossroads experience that I didn't even realize was happening, and that was I could easily have veered off away from my Catholic faith if I hadn't had somebody in my life to give me the answers. In this case, it was my own father. And I also noticed that my dad was not the least bit perturbed by any of these arguments. It was almost like he was, you know, ah, no problem, got that covered good to go. We've got the answers to that. So that helped me a lot was to see a kind of um, re reasonable kind of confidence that my father had. And then have the, having the answers was very important. So I could have veered away from my Catholic faith. And instead of being at a Catholic apologetics conference, who knows, I might be a pastor at an evangelical church or something like that. And, and the reason I say that is because many pastors at evangelical churches are former Catholics. And many of the people in those churches are former Catholics, don't you know? which is why it's so important for us, hearkening back to all of us knowing somebody who's left the Catholic Church, it's so important for us to be able to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can give the answers. What happened in my case was it made me a stronger Catholic because I went from the childlike type of faith and I was really in a kind of childish type of faith where it was a matter of custom or habit, or this is what my parents told me is true. I had not, up to that point, made a concentrated effort to try to know for sure for myself whether or not these things were true. I just accepted them on face value, as we all did at one time. But as you all know, the older you get and the more challenges to those beliefs you encounter, the more necessary it becomes for you to do your own work and find out for yourself whether or not these things are true. And that's what happened to me that summer. I didn't even realize that it was happening. And I don't know if I'll ever see Christie's father on Facebook or something. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever run into him again. This is many, many years ago. But if I do, I'll hesitate whether or not to tell him that he's partly responsible for the fact that I do this work that I do. I think his hair would catch on fire if he realized <laughs> that he, uh, he actually helped create, in his eyes, probably created a monster that summer. But I look back with a lot of gratitude to her father for that. Now, what that helped me do, that and all the other experiences that came after that, uh, was to marshal my thinking as to why I'm a Catholic. And what I'd like to do now is maybe go through a series of bullet points that I will not be able to elaborate on in any detail, but just simply to bring to your attention and encourage you to take a look at these things as bullet points that might work for you in speaking to somebody who asks you why you're Catholic. Or if somebody that you know has left the church and is asking you, well, why should I come back to the Catholic Church? What's in it for me? Here are some of the things that I say. And I make a point of emphasizing to audiences that I don't presume to tell anyone else why he or she should be Catholic, but I feel full freedom to be able to express from my heart why I'm a Catholic. And that's a very handy rhetorical device. Remember that apologetics involves not only the content of what you're going to present, but also the technique in which you present it. I love the way uh, St. Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with respect and love. Do it with uh, meekness. Be, he doesn't say all these things. Do it with politeness. Do it with charity. Do it with patience. So that's the technique part. The content part is giving the reasons for the hope that are in you. And so I just wanted to emphasize how important it is as a rhetorical device that you could say to somebody, listen, I'm not going to try to push anything on you, but would it be okay with you if I just simply shared with you from my heart how I came to this conclusion of what I believe? I've never met anyone who's going to say, forget about it. I don't want to hear that. I mean, unless he's like a really hardened critic of the church. Everybody seems to be willing to at least hear me out, and they'll do the same thing for you. I recall one plane flight I had. I was flying from L.A. back home, where I live now in Columbus, Ohio, 
And because I do a lot of flying, I have a lot of frequent flyer miles. And because I have a lot of frequent flyer miles, you get all these upgrades in, into first class. It was an early flight. I walked onto the plane, got into the first class cabin, and it was nearly empty. And there was one gentleman sitting in a window seat. And I looked at my boarding pass, and I saw that I had the aisle seat next to his window seat. But everything else was wide open. So I sat down, and I said to him, I said, you know, they're, they're going to be closing the door in a minute. And when they do, I'll move so we can have some more elbow room. And he turned to me with a kind of uh, unhappy look on his face. He says, why? Is that because I'm a Muslim? And I said, no. And I'm thinking to myself, I am definitely sitting in this seat no matter what for the rest of this flight. And he said, well, I'm from the Middle East and I'm a Muslim. Is that why you don't want to sit next to me? I said, no, sir. I said, in fact, now I really want to sit next to you. And so we had this long, productive uh, conversation in which he, he immediately got into why I should become a Muslim. And so I said, I tell you what, we've got a, three hours ahead of us. Why don't we do this? I'm going to say nothing, and I'm just going to absorb everything you can tell me about why I should be Muslim. You make the case, give me whatever the best arguments are. I'm going to listen with my full attention. All I ask is that when you're done and I get the second half of our plane trip to do that, that you will listen with equal attention to what I have to say. Does that sound fair? And he said, sure. And so that's exactly what happened. He, he gave all of his arguments. He told me all the reasons why Jesus couldn't be God and why God doesn't have a son, all these things. And then when it was my turn, I gave my presentation. And I was so excited by the time the plane trip was over, not because I saw any movement on his part. He was probably, if anything, a little more grumpy by the time the conversation was over because he didn't get anywhere with me on that trip. But I was really excited because I had, uh, I had given myself an opportunity to learn apologetics from the source, from a Muslim believer who gave what probably are the best arguments that you can give for and against, uh, for Islam and against Christianity. And also, I had a chance to practice the other side of apologetics, which is to tell my story and to do my best to explain from my heart why I believe that Jesus is God and so forth. So even though we stayed in touch, he wanted me to see some Muslim apologetics videos on this website, and he sent me a follow-up email. Did you see the, the videos? And I said, uh, as a matter of fact, yes, I did. And here I saw this one and this one and this one. And by the way, did you watch the Scott Hahn video that I sent you? You know, And uh, I never heard back from him at that point. So, <laughs> so apologetics is practical. And in your day-to-day -day lives, I would like to encourage you, avail yourselves of any opportunity that you have to engage in apologetics. That's how you get better at it. It's like speaking a foreign language. Unless you're willing to learn from experience and mispronouncing the word, someone might chuckle when they hear you mispronounce a word, or you use the wrong word, or you forget the word, that's how you learn to speak a foreign language, as you all know if you've studied foreign languages. And becoming fluent in apologetics is very similar. You're here to study apologetics, which is awesome. I'm excited about that. And I'm grateful to Dr. O'Donnell and Christendom College for making this opportunity available to all of you. But don't, don't stay at this sort of introductory level. You have to go deeper, and you have to practice. And by practicing, you'll get better at it. The better at it you get, the more comfortable you'll be. The more comfortable you are, the less flustered you're going to be. And the less flustered you are, the more effective you're going to be. So when somebody says to me, well, why are you Catholic? You know, what about the scandals? And what about all the other stuff? And the Crusades and the Inquisition, they bring up Galileo and all the other handy sticks to beat the Catholic Church with. By the way, that's why I've made a, a mission of my career as an apologist to write books on all of those topics so that somebody says, well, what about Galileo? I said, well, I just happened to have written a book on that very topic. <laughs> would love to introduce you to some facts on that subject. In fact, I, I've been meaning to mention this to you. I, I wrote this book called Why Be Catholic? And this book is a synopsis, essentially, of the points that I'm making to you, but it goes much deeper, obviously. And when somebody says to me, why be Catholic? I say, well, if you're willing, I'll share with you in my words why I'm Catholic, because it's all here in this book. So here are the bullet points I go through. I say, number one, I'm Catholic when I could be anything else because I've become convinced that the Catholic Church is the church established by Jesus Christ. And in a moment, I'll offer you uh, one way that I try to make that case. Keep in mind that if you're speaking to an atheist 
or a non-Christian, you can't begin with that point. That point works if you're speaking to a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, a Southern Baptist, etc. And chances are the majority of people you meet in your life will fall into that category. But for those of you who work with an atheist or you work with a non-Christian, you have to back up and you have to begin with, well, first let me tell you why I believe in God. And if you can make the case for why you believe in God as being a reasonable worldview, a Christian theist, well, let's start back up a little bit further. You first want to establish the theistic worldview. Why it is that God must exist. How it is that atheism, for example, cannot account for realities in this life that we all know to be true. And the reason that it can't account for them is because the atheistic worldview entails a component called naturalism. Sometimes it's called uh, physicalism or scientism even. Naturalism holds that the only things that exist anywhere are physical. Everything that exists is reducible to matter in some way or another. And the corollary to that argument is that nothing immaterial exists. There's no supernatural realm. Ergo, no God, no angels, no demons, no human souls, no heaven and hell. None of that actually exists because the only things that exist are material. Keep that in mind. Well, if that's true, you want to point out, there are many things to talk about with an atheist, but this is one entry point into a conversation. Just say, well, then how do you account for things that you and I both know are real, like truth or love or memory or human dignity, right and wrong, honesty, integrity? You could go down the list of giving examples. You know that I know that all these things exist. Where are they? Can you go get a box of love somewhere? Or can you reach into your pantry and pull out a, uh, a container of truth? You can't. But all of these things really do exist, and all the atheists in the world know they do exist. But how do you account for them if we live in a universe that is purely material? Now, here again, I can't elaborate on this or any of the other themes I'd like to touch upon, other than to say the books and the CDs and the DVDs and the YouTube videos that amply demonstrate this are available easily. Many of them are free, for example, the YouTube videos. I would encourage you, if you're interested in, in the apologetics endeavor with atheists, for example, go onto YouTube and search for atheist Christian debate, does God exist? And you're going to pull up a slew of them. And I would say take any one of them because the atheist worldview always loses. Now, it doesn't mean that the atheist might not be the better debater, sometimes they are, or the atheist might be a more convincing orator, sometimes they are. But if you look at the arguments and the explanation, you begin to see, as I and so many others have seen, that the theistic worldview really does carry the day because it can account for things like this. If God exists, then there is no problem with love and truth and honesty and so forth. If you are talking to a non-Christian, then you're going to step up from theism, which you do use to deal with atheists, and that would be what we call natural apologetics. That's the lowest level or the broadest level of apologetics. The second level would be Christian apologetics, and that's where you're dealing with those who either believe in God or are perfectly willing to accept that God exists. And with them, what you do is you want to make the case for Jesus. The divinity, first of all, the existence of Jesus Christ. Did he actually exist? Was he God? Did he rise from the dead? And if you can make the case, and you can, for those components, then you have opened the door to the third and, in some ways, the most interesting dimension of apologetics, and that is Catholic apologetics. Because then you're making the case for those distinctively Catholic aspects of Christianity, such as the Holy Eucharist, and the communion of saints, and apostolic tradition, etc., etc. So this is a very, uh, very fluid kind of three different categories of apologetics. It's not always easy to know when one has ended and one begins. They all go together. They're not mutually exclusive, but they are distinct. So please keep that in mind. Natural apologetics, Christian apologetics, and Catholic apologetics. In this case, you're dealing with a Christian apologetics argument when you say, as I do, I believe that the Catholic Church is the church established by Jesus Christ. And Perhaps the most effective way I've found to do that, to make that case in a quick way, would be to use the historical argument. John Henry Newman, blessed John Henry Newman, was a master of this. In fact, those of you 
uh, who have studied Newman, you know probably that he was once a bitterly, vociferously anti-Catholic Anglican minister who preached sermons about how the Pope was the Antichrist and the Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon. And he decided that he wanted to write the definitive work that would once and for all disprove Catholic claims on things like the papacy and purgatory and the mass and so forth. And so he set about surveying the early church to show that the early Christians were not Catholics. He got a third of the way through his project and he threw up his hands in exasperation and he became Catholic because as he put it in his classic work, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, to become deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And what he discovered is simply that no matter how far back you go in history, all the way back to the first century, during the time of the apostles, you will not not find the Catholic Church. You find the Catholic Church in every generation from the present day back to the end. And if you wanted to make a biblical case, you could say something like this. Well, Jesus said certain things that were clues about the church in the Gospel of Matthew, for example. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said that you are the light of the world. Remember that one? No one lights a lamp and then hides it under a basket. Well, that would seem to imply visibility, right? That the church is visible. He said you're like a city set on a hill. You can see a city set on a hill, especially at nighttime, because of all the light emanating from it. So I would say to somebody, well, there's a clue, and it implies visibility. Jesus also said in Matthew 16, he said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there's plenty of other things in that same passage that are very important, but we'll concentrate just on that statement, on this rock I will build my church. Now, I pose it to somebody by saying, well, Jesus seems to say then that this church is his church. He's establishing this church. It's not traceable to some other person. Would you agree with that? Most people say, well, yeah, that makes sense. And then the last clue I found in uh, Matthew chapter 28 at the very end of the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into the whole world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Well, that would imply perpetuity, would it not? That Jesus would be with the church till the end of the world. Therefore, the church would have to exist until the end of the world. And if that's the case, though we don't know when the end of the world will come, we can look backward and test this theory. And here we are in the year 2015. The Catholic Church is visible, the doctrines especially, but also the Pope and the bishops in union with the Pope and all the other external qualities, but there are many other churches that are visible. Go back 200 years. Go back 200 years and you'll find in the year 1815 the Catholic Church, but you won't find Mormonism. It didn't exist. Joseph Smith Jr., the man that would start that religion, was still a little boy. You won't find Jehovah's Witnesses. You won't find Seventh-day Adventists. You won't find any of the non-denominational denominations. None of those groups existed but you will find the Catholic Church. And what Newman did, essentially, was he kept going back. He said, okay, now let's go back to the year 1515. Guess what? Martin Luther is still a Catholic priest. There were no um, Baptists, no Methodists, no Reformed, no Lutherans. You keep going back, and what you'll find is, gradually, all these various religious movements and groups begin to vanish until you get back to the first century, and you still see the Catholic Church in an unbroken line of existence from the present day all the way back to the very beginning. It's a very powerful argument, especially so if you're speaking to somebody who may not really know that much about Christian history. Another reason why I'm Catholic when I could be anything else is because I've become convinced that the teachings of the Catholic Church are true. And here again, over the years that I've had the privilege of engaging in apologetics, one of the things that I found was a lot of, for example, Protestants, but also atheists and others, they would want to do public debates. And I'm not a particularly good debater, I'll admit that freely, and it is a very scary thought to walk into a church with a thousand people there who are there, most of them, to see you lose. And they have the video cameras and the lights and the recording equipment. One debate I was invited to participate in was in uh, Pasadena, and there were 1,600 people in the audience. Uh, Dr. Uh, Bill Marshner, recently retired from Christendom College, was one of three, I was a leader of a three-man team of debaters. Dr. Bill Marshner was one of the, the other two. 
and we were debating a, a Lutheran and two Reformed ministers. And there were 1,600 people in the audience. I asked the, the people who were organizing it, how many people do you think here are Catholic? And he said, maybe, maybe 200. And uh, so I realized there are 1,400 people in this room who are waiting to see me crash and burn. Did not feel very good. But what happened was, in spite of my own deficiencies as a debater, at the end of the debate, a young woman came up to Nancy and me, and she introduced herself, and she said, I'm an evangelical Protestant. I came here to see the debate. I brought a bunch of my Catholic friends so that they would be converted to evangelical Protestantism. But she said, I'm feeling really weird right now because I feel that I've never heard the Catholic case before until this debate. I've never known what the Catholic Church might say, and I'm worried that maybe God is saying that I have to become a Catholic when I wanted them to become Protestant. And turns out, her name was Annie, turns out uh, we stayed in touch. She did become Catholic. She's now happily married with several children. And to this day, she'll still send me notes on Facebook or by email, and she'll say, guess what? I, I met this Baptist minister in a grocery store, and I gave him the CDs of that debate. And he's in RCIA now. He's going to become Catholic <laughs> at um, next Easter. So I offer that to you just as, as a way to emphasize this truth, and that is that Catholic truth, Catholic teaching, has its own gravitational pull. It has its own beauty. But it's our job to show forth that beauty and show forth that truth by being willing to talk about these things, and by, by being willing to share our faith, give our testimony, that kind of thing. It really does draw people. I wish there were time to tell you some other stories about how that actually works. But suffice to say, I can tell you it really does work when you speak and you share your faith from the heart. It really has a draw. And the truth of the Catholic faith will draw people. Now, the reason I mention that debate is because sometimes that's how people find the truth of the Catholic Church, or they read their way in, or they hear it on Catholic radio, etc. Were there time, I would cycle through all of the major doctrines of the Catholic Church, the role of the Pope, the Holy Eucharist, Jesus Christ truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It would be as if a conductor of a symphony orchestra were to gather all this, this ensemble of trained musicians and say, okay, now I want you to go into the whole world and describe music to people. Tell them what music would sound like if only they could hear it. That would defeat the purpose of an orchestra, wouldn't you say? But if the conductor said, here are the instruments, now go make music. To me, that's a great analogy for what Jesus did with the church, and in particular, the Mass and the Eucharist. Rather than simply read about Jesus, talk about Jesus, sing about Jesus, all of which are good, we actually receive Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the appearance of bread and wine, because the Mass is the analogy to the instruments that make the music. And when people can begin to see what the Lord did for his church, in the sacraments especially, and most particularly the Holy Eucharist, it is a powerful draw for them. I would love to spend time talking with somebody asking me about why I'm Catholic to talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary or to talk about the church's moral teachings. I'm going to conclude with just a, a few brief thoughts on that point because we have to wrap things up here in just a minute. One of the, um, one of the great lessons that I learned in my life I learned from my, my lovely wife, Nancy, and Nancy's here with me. I don't see her. I don't see where she is, but she's here with, with me. She's out at the book table. Okay. Um, th this happened when we were, um, our youngest child, who's now 14, this is our 11th child, uh, was, was a newborn. Now, Nancy and I, by the way, oddly enough, have never been invited to teach natural family planning classes. I don't know why, <laughs> but... We had our, our 11th child, and we wanted to get away from all the, the hubbub, so we went to a local olive garden, Nancy and I, and uh, our new little newborn. And the waitress put us into our booth, gave us our menus, and we were going to order, but she started talking with Nancy about the baby. Oh, how old is the baby, boy or girl, that kind of thing. And Nancy's answering all the questions that we've answered, that any mom would answer, until the, the waitress asked Nancy the question that neither she nor I wanted her to ask, which was, is he your first? So I'll never forget this. Nancy looked at me across the table, and with her eyes, she asked me, do you want to tell her? And I shook my head, no, you can tell her. So Nancy says, he's our 11th. Now, this poor woman did not know how to act when she heard 11 children. She grabbed, she, like, like the guy from Sanford and Son, remember, he clutched his chest. And, 
she ran off and got three or four other waitresses and brought them back to our table. <laughs> we're this spectacle. So there we're sitting at our table, and these waitresses are now clustered around the table, and they're looking at us, and they're commenting, like, 11 kids? Why would you have 11 kids? And that's got to be so expensive. And, you know, it was just clearly very weird in their eyes that we would have 11 kids, willingly have 11 kids. And I could see them. They were looking at Nancy thinking, you poor thing. And they're looking at me thinking, you monster, how could you do this to your wife? And then they started giving us their own contraceptive habits. They started talking about that. So one waitress says, yeah, well, we have two kids, and I'm on the pill now. Ha, ha, ha. They're all laughing. And the other one said, yeah, well, uh, I got my tubes tied. And the other one said, well, I made my husband get a vasectomy. And I'm sitting there thinking, I just want to have a plate of lasagna. I, <laughs> I really don't want to know this information right about now. And so in the midst of all of this lecturing and all the criticism and all that, my lovely wife, she smiled at these women and she said these exact words. She said, well, my husband and I believe in being open to life uh, because children are a blessing from God and we want God to bless our marriage. That's it. That's all she said. And it was like putting water on a campfire because that they all settled down. They went back to work. So we kind of laughed. It wasn't that kind of funny. And then we ate our food. We forgot about it. I paid the bill. We got the baby. And we went out to our car. And as we were getting into our minivan, we heard footsteps running up behind us. And I turned around, and it was our waitress. And she had run all the way the length of the parking lot to where we were parked. And every time we passed by this olive garden, I always think about what happened next. She said, kind of out of breath, she said, oh, I'm glad I caught you. I didn't want you to leave without saying thank you. Now, I knew she wasn't talking to me because the tip was not anywhere near that big. So <laughs> she was talking to my wife, and she said, I just wanted to say thank you. What you said in there about children being a blessing from God, she said, when you said that you believe in being open to life so that God will bless your marriage, she said, it just struck me all of a sudden that that's true. She said, I'm on the pill. I've never, ever thought about it that way. We have two kids we don't want anymore. But now that I heard you say that, she says, I realize something has changed in my heart. That's true. She said, I've already decided I'm getting off the pill. When I go home tonight after my shift, I'm telling my husband that I'm off the pill. I don't know what his reaction is going to be, but I'm, I'm doing this because I want God to bless my marriage. And I just wanted to say thank you for what you said. She gave Nancy a hug. She went back in the restaurant. We never saw her again. But what a powerful lesson for me personally. I hope it's useful to you too. When you're doing apologetics, you don't have to be complicated. You don't have to be razzmatazz. If you share from your heart and you simply speak the truth in love, do your best, give it to God, pray for the other person, don't be afraid to fail, don't be afraid to mispronounce the word, uh, speak from your heart, it's incredible the miracles that can take place. The last thing I want to leave you with, and I'm keeping an eye on my timer here so that I don't go over time. The last thing I want to leave you with is um, just this thought. Two final quick thoughts. This one is from a, a book called Small Miracles. And the man who wrote this, his name is Greg O'Leary. True story, happened years ago. But listen to this. And now be thinking in terms of why it's so important for you and for me to take action when it comes to trying to help even just one person at a time. We can't save the whole culture, but we can help one person at a time. Listen to this story. I was walking down a dimly lit street late one evening when I heard muffled screams coming from behind a clump of bushes. Alarmed, I slowed down to listen and panicked when I realized that what I was hearing were the unmistakable sounds of a struggle. Heaving, grunting, frantic scuffling, the tearing of fabric. Only yards from where I stood, a woman was being attacked. Should I get involved? I was frightened for my own safety and cursed myself for having suddenly decided to take a new route home that night. What if I became a victim? Shouldn't I just run away and call the police and let them handle it? Although it seemed like an eternity, the deliberations in my head had taken only seconds, but already the girl's cries were growing weaker. I knew I had to act fast. How could I walk away from this? No, I finally resolved I could not turn my back on the fate of this unknown woman, even if it meant risking my own life. I'm not a brave man, nor am I athletic, and I don't know where I found the moral courage and the physical strength. But once I had finally resolved to help the girl, I became strangely transformed. I ran behind the bushes, grabbed the assailant, and pulled him off the woman. Grappling and punching, we fell to the ground, where we struggled for a few moments until he jumped upright 
and ran off. Panting hard, uh, I approached the girl who was crouched behind a tree, sobbing. In the darkness, I could barely see her outline, but I could certainly sense her trembling shock. Not wanting to frighten her further, I at first spoke to her from a distance and said soothingly, It's okay, the man ran away, you're safe now. There was a long pause, and then I heard her words uttered in wonder and amazement. Dad, is that you? And then from behind the tree stepped my youngest daughter, Catherine. And every time I read that story, as a father, I have five daughters of my own, every time I read that story and I think about what could have happened if he had taken the cowardly way out, if he had not said, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the risk might be to myself, but I'm going to step in and I'm going to do something because this person needs my help. God only knows what could have happened to his daughter if he had taken the cowardly way out. Now, I like that story because it's very galvanizing to me, and I hope it is for you as well, that we don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'll wait for Scott Hahn to do that, or I'll wait for the people at Catholic Answers to take care of that. You have a job to do, just as I do, just as they do, and that is to be person-specific and help the people we can in the moment. Don't you think? All right. So we'll finish with this mission statement, which I did not write. I wish I had. Uh, it's, I don't even know who wrote it. There are different people who claim to have written it, but it's not clear who actually wrote it. But it's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And I'd like to conclude with all of you budding apologists. I'd like you to think about The Fellowship of the Unashamed as a mission statement a, uh, a way of operating going forward from here today. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. The decision has been made. I have stepped over the line. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is in God's hands. I am finished and done with low living, small planning, the bare minimum, smooth knees, mundane talking, frivolous living, selfish giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, the best, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean on Christ's presence. I love with patience, live by prayer, and labor with the power of God's grace. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and spoken up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I am a Catholic. I must go until he comes. Give until I drop, speak out until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he returns for his own, he will have no difficulty recognizing me, for my banner is clear. I am a part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. Thank you all very much, and God bless you. Thank you very much.